Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Listen, I have known for the last two weeks where we're coming today. And you remember how a few weeks ago I said, fasten your safety belt, remember, as we got into Romans 9? You remember that? Well, if you fasten your safety belt for Romans 9, you really fasten your safety belt for the middle of Romans 9, where it says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. And if you fasten your safety belt for Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, you really fasten your safety belt for what we've hit today. And so, uh, I am going to try this morning to stick pretty closely to my manuscript, don't resent me, for trying to read to you what I've written, because I, I want you to think carefully this morning. And before we get into it, I want all of you to cop. Do you know what it is to cop a plea? Does everybody know what copying a plea is? I want all of you to cop to the fact that what I'm going to describe this morning is precisely who you are. And it is precisely what you have raised your children to be. Okay? It is who you are, and it's what you have raised your children to be. Now, with that as a beginning, let me say some things, then I'll read the scripture. And then we'll pray. But I have to give us the context. You have to feel how you've arrived at the text that we're going to look at this morning. And to do that, we have to read what comes before it. I'm sorry, but it's always important. We have been working our way through Romans, and specifically the ninth chapter of Romans, where the Apostle Paul has been responding to those who accuse God of not keeping his word. You must understand, that's the subtext through all of this. God hasn't kept his word. God has not kept his covenant. God's made promises to us as Jews, as descendants of Israel. He's not keeping. Okay? He had promised they would be his special, his covenant people from generation to generation. And yet here they were, rejecting his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, refusing to accept his sacrifice for their sins as the entire Old Testament, their entire law and prophets had prophesied and promised. So that now the Christian church was filled with Gentiles instead. It was not that the Jews were entirely discovenanted. Many of them, including many Pharisees too, had believed on Jesus and were in the church. But increasingly, the church that was the fulfillment of Yahweh's Old Testament covenant promises was a place, a home, an ingathering of the people who had not received the law and the prophets, who had not been brought up out of Egypt, into the promised land, who had not marked their sons with circumcision, the sign of the covenant, according to God's command, who did not celebrate the great antitype of the Passover with their families in Jerusalem each year, which pointed forward to the perfect Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. How could this be? How could God promise to keep his covenant 
to the Abraham, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet now obviously be turning his back on them and giving the fulfillment of his promise to the dirty, non-promised, non-covenanted Gentiles. This is the question that chapter 9 has been responding to in the middle of that response. How could God turn from the Jews, the people of Israel, to the Gentiles, yes, but really to the Canaanites and the Samaritans? Does that make sense to you? Which is to ask, how could God break his word? But the fact of the matter is directly stated just now turns out to be less scandalous than the answer the Apostle Paul has been giving. And we're in the middle of that answer and it gets more offensive. Do you understand what I just said? In other words, however offensive it is that God is turning from the Jews to the Gentiles, when we accuse God of not keeping his word and Paul responds, the Apostle Paul responds, the Apostle Paul responds under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Okay, his response is more offensive than what we're complaining about. And I want you to see that this morning. Now, first, a few of the texts that have come before what we're going to pick up today, okay? The Apostle Paul says, writes, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So we know what the accusation is because he responds, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, I want to stop here for just a second and say to us that far and away the most volatile issue in America today is identity politics. All of us are more committed to identity politics than we are to Jesus Christ. All of us are much more inclined to look to all the apparatus, all the arguments of identity politics for what is right and good and fair than we are to Scripture. Because it's the breast that in our culture we, we drink from. Identity politics are everything you read, everything you hear, everything about everything today is about identity politics. You white, you black. You poor, you rich. You educated, you uneducated. You Baptist, you Presbyterian. One of the problems that we have today is that nobody will admit that actually the distinction between Presbyterian and Baptist is not a theological one. It's actually identity politics. It's actually whether you're upper middle management or, or working class. That's the division between Baptist and Presbyterian. And so it's a class issue. It's identity politics. And if you read Niebuhr and other scholars, they just go through and show you what actually the social strata is that each denomination appeals to, right? You should all know this. <clears throat> you can predict how we dress and which instruments are played based upon denomination. Is that theological? Well, of course, all an Englishman's preferences are a matter of principle, you know. And so we're all into identity politics. Probably one of the more interesting things that ever happened to me 
on the issue of identity politics in my life was years ago when I was in St. Louis at a meeting of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA, and I had worked with a, a, a political satirist, cartoonist out at the Colorado Springs Gazette. He was very good, and he came up at our request with a whole bunch of cartoons that used the Dred Scott decision in St. Louis, okay? If you don't know what Dred Scott is, you should know what it is. He used this as, as the foundation of a bunch of cartoons for our exhibit at General Assembly, the pro-life, Presbyterians pro-life. And so like one of the cartoons that we had up on our exhibit was a little black boy, all right, sitting on a cloud in heaven, holding an unborn baby in his lap, saying to the unborn baby, there, there, I know just how you feel. All right, do you know the Dred Scott decision? Go home and read about it, and you'll understand the cartoon. And so uh, the leading people in the PCUSA who were black saw this exhibit, and they came unglued. They went livid. They were, they were gnashing their teeth, and they came and began yelling, and pretty soon all the TV cameras and radio and journalists showed up, and it was a big, big, big stinking mess. They called me to come and, and see if I could help, so I, you know, calm things down. That's what people generally ask me to do, is calm things down. Right? <laughs> so I showed up there, and there was this, this dear godly brother um, <clears throat> who was trying to speak reason to these uh, black men and women who were in their 50s and 60s and much bigger than he was and much louder and had the attention of the television cameras. And this poor guy was talking to him, trying to explain to them that actually the parallel between denying the personhood of blacks and denying the personhood of unborn children is a good parallel. And it infuriated them. And finally, well, what I didn't tell you about this guy is that he was a pastor in Mississippi, and he was African, and he was black, and he had a doctorate, an earned doctorate. And so now with that background, a black man who's blacker than the black men that are yelling at him, in the middle of it, they look at him and they say, you are not black. This is identity politics. Okay? This is identity politics. All of us are very precious about being Scotch or Irish or Scandinavian or German or white or Asian, or Latino, or Hispanic, or burp, 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 burp. gay, straight, trans, bi, cisgender. This is, this is as high as the thought life of the Western world rises. The very top of it is identity politics. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans 9. This is precisely what he's dealing with in Galatians. We fight as groups, not just as individuals. It's not just that your wife looks at you and says, honey, you can never be right because you're a man. All right? But it's also that white Husband and wife look at black 
husband and wife and say, you can never be right because you're black. And blacks look at southern blacks and say, you can never be right. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And the Jews are saying, you said we were your special people, and you're not keeping your word. And so the Apostle Paul is having to defend God. Because the accusation of God's people is against Yahweh, their God. He said they would be his people, and they're not. And so he is explaining this to them, and he says such an offensive thing. He says, that is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God. In other words, you have black flesh, but you aren't black, right? The Apostle Paul is parsing the issue of Israel, of of Jewishness, just as they were parsing the issue of blackness, too close to the line. And the Apostle Paul is claiming that he has the authority of God to say who is and isn't a Jew, who is and isn't Israel, who is and isn't circumcised. It appears ludicrous. Would you agree? That the Apostle Paul would defend God by saying, well, you're circumcised. You're not really circumcised. It's like, dude, I am. And then he goes on, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. He's quoting the Old Testament. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now, this is identity politics. Do you understand that? And what's being talked about here is the identity of a Christian. What's being talked about here is the identity of who is it precisely who belongs to God. Okay? Who precisely belongs to God. In other words, this is a question of who is saved and who is damned. And really, there should be no identity that comes anywhere near to the importance of this identity with every man and every woman who has ever lived. Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Okay? Harsh words, those. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. But it's hard to accuse God of not keeping his word when this is merely a direct quote from the Old Testament law and prophets. In other words, this too has long been the word of God, which has always been every jot and tittle, every comma, every M dash, eternally true. Sadly, though, the Jews objecting to God's ingathering of the unclean Gentiles just now in the early church had not listened to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament law and prophets, to the eternal truth. They knew it was there in Malachi for sure. But I mean, to what end? Who knew and who really cared? 
Isn't this how we treat much of Scripture? Sure, the fact, the number, the name, the statement is there, but to what end? And really, who cares? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Who needs that? What on earth does that mean? Paul can't be serious, can he? Where did he come up with that? Hasn't he read any of the moral philosophers? Has he no concept of equal opportunity? Simple justice, simple equity, simple fairness. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, that's the kind of thing you'd expect a really abusive authoritarian to say. And speaking for myself, we have no need to affirm such psychological abuse. We're all grown up now here in the Western world. We're no longer letting God act on us. We are the actors, and we'll act on him as we have a mind to do. We're in our maturity now. We've evolved, and we'll no longer allow some so-called creator to dictate to us anything really, and certainly not the terms of our salvation. We have masks, and we'll fend for ourselves. Thank you. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. I mean, I mean, really. I mean, really. So that's the setup for our text this morning, Romans 9, 14 to 15. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now then, verse 14, what shall we say then, is the Apostle Paul probing the minds and hearts of his readers, his listeners. And knowing his own rebellion, his own arrogance, he also knows his sheep's rebellion and their arrogance. And here he nails it, what they're thinking, and then he responds to it. First, he nails it. He exposes what it is in his readers and listeners' minds and hearts. They are accusing God of, verse 14, injustice. He knows they're doing that. His readers, the people of the church in Rome, are accusing God of not being fair, of being unjust. And that's why he says, what should we say then? Is God not just? And he uses the rhetorical question, there is no injustice with God, is there? And he's not asking it because he himself is unsure of the matter. He's not really wondering if God is unjust or unfair. He's not really ready to accuse God of not protecting the equality of opportunity 
And it's not because he hasn't yet read the history of the French Revolution or Rawls' fair equality of opportunity or the 14th Amendment or Title IX. Here is the beginning of the very long Wikipedia article on, quote, equal opportunity. Equal opportunity, quote, is a state of fairness in which individuals are treated similarly, unhampered by artificial barriers or prejudices or preferences, except when particular distinctions can be explicitly justified. The intent is that the important jobs in an organization should go to the people who are most qualified, persons most likely to perform ably in a given task and not go to persons for reasons deemed arbitrary or irrelevant, such as circumstances of birth, upbringing, having well-connected relatives or friends, religion, sex, ethnicity, race, caste, or involuntary personal attributes, such as disability, age, gender identity, or sexual orientation. It continues, chances for advancement should be open to everybody interested such that they have, quote, an equal chance to compete within the framework of goals and the structure of rules established, unquote. And then continuing, the idea is to remove arbitrariness from the selection process. Now, are all of you feeling the boa constrictor constricting? All our talk of equal opportunity is toward the goal of removing arbitrariness from the selection process. Think about it. And rather to base it on some, quote, pre-agreed basis of fairness, and of course, we know when they say pre-agreed, they're not talking about us agreeing with God. They're not talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit agreeing. God is not in view here. It is the citizens who have agreed to what the process is going to look like. The citizens declare what is fair. With the assessment process being related to the type of position and emphasizing procedural and legal means. And then, this is the final sentence, individuals should succeed or fail based on their own efforts and not extraneous circumstances such as having well-connected parents. I'll read it again. Individuals should succeed or fail based on their own efforts and not extraneous circumstances. Now, in this summary that I just read you about equal opportunity, do you recognize that this is more true for every Western world citizen than is the word of God? This is more deeply in our DNA, in the DNA of our children, than anything that Scripture says. This is taught us and our children relentlessly It is the theme of every sermon given by everyone in a pulpit from the time you leave here Sunday morning to the time you come back in a week. 
It is the Sisyphean task I have as a pastor to disenamor you of this foundational truth of the Western world. If we go to war, it is this that we are going to war as a nation to establish in Islamic nations. If we have a reason to exist in the Western world, it is because we represent these truths and they are to us self-evident. Really, nobody has to argue for this anymore. It's so deep in us that the only argument is how exactly to implement it, right? And that's what's going on with the woke movement and BLM and all that stuff, right? It's not really an argument about the principles. The principles are just taken for granted. It's an argument about what is the best way of implementing those principles and who owes whom what and how much, okay? Back to the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome now. This demand that God be fair as we ourselves define fairness is nothing new, is it? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the church in Rome. Do you see this? We're Jews. You owe us. You can't turn back on your word. Uh, who's a Jew? What do you mean, who's a Jew? I'm a descendant of Isaac. Jacob, Abraham, we have Moses as our father. I'm circumcised. I circumcised my sons. What do you mean? Uh, not all Israel is this. What? This is identity politics. In between the services, I was talking to an African-American man who attends here. And so we had a long discussion about identity. He recently read a book by uh, a guy named Thomas Sowell. If you haven't read Sowell, you should. I've been loving him for decades. <laughs> He's another African-American man. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book that he told me to read. But listen, you should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. You should read uh, Native Son. You should read the classics of African and American identity politics. Um, I could keep going about what to read, but you need to be aware of what is going on around you in terms of arguments, right? And one of the reasons you need to do this is you will understand the book of Romans. You'll understand the whole New Testament. You'll understand Acts 15. You'll understand the book of Galatians a whole lot better if you immerse yourself into what words you're supposed to use to refer to what people and what words you're not allowed to use. And what, what Dwayne and I were talking about are what words that this community can use within its community, but if anybody outside of the community uses it, that is absolutely worse than cursing God. Okay? And what happens is we as Christians take our eye off the ball. When we get caught up in the identity politics and in race, discussing race and reparations and all this stuff and show how sensitive we are to other people's suffering, we're taking our eye off the ball because the true suffering that this world is, 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 is our um, uh, 
I want to say preparation, but that's too light of a word. Our uh, time of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Stephen? Our time of uh, testing, our time of probation. That's right, that's the word. This world is an anteroom. It is our time of probation for what will be the only identity that matters. Because in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Okay? What matters is whether we have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And although it is true that descent and race is tied to that question, all right? You remember him saying, there are the promises, there is the sacrifices, the ritual, the worship, They got the book. They are the people of the book. All right. Although these things are tied, these things are not what determines our eternal security and salvation. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. He's trying to disengage them from the notion that they understand what fairness and justice are, and they will call God to account on the basis of their understanding of fairness and justice. And would any of you deny that that's what's going on across the Western world today? There's no way. It is what's going on. 2,000 years ago, explaining the recent disadvantaging of the Jews, the sons of Israel, and its explanation by the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit responding with Jacob I love, Esau I've hated, It then immediately brought forth from our sinful, arrogant, rebellious hearts, that's not just, that's not fair, that ain't right. And it matters not a whit to us that it is our creator, the mighty father of the universe, that we are accusing. It matters not that this explanation of Yahweh passing by his people, the sons of Israel, is simply a quote from his law and prophets recorded in the now Old Testament. They responded then, the Christians of the church in Rome, and we respond today also. That's not just, that's not right, that's not fair. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? The last statement then comes, may it never be. And this is a statement of vehemence, vehemence. The thought, let alone the statement, is monstrous. It should never be thought, let alone said, never. May it never be. There is a certain sort of man, though, and such men tend to be concentrated in college and university communities, who is enamored of his own intellect and the great dignity of his own thoughts. Nothing and no one are ever allowed to condemn his thoughts. Thoughts are sacrosanct. Thinking is the summa bonum, the greatest good. I think, therefore I am. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is obviously not of this arrogance and stupidity, and it's not because he's uneducated. It's not because he's a country bumpkin. He was the protege of the top Jewish scholar, Gamaliel. He was a scholar's scholar. 
knowing how devious the mind and heart are, how corrupted they are by the fall, he says, what everyone, especially everyone who considers himself sophisticated, is thinking. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? But then, still, still being the scholar's scholar, the Apostle Paul answers this wicked, arrogant, and rebellious attack upon Almighty God with this very unscholarly, tight, insecure, and really authoritarian declaration. Or really this condemnation. May it never be. May it never be. Now at this point, having shut down the rebels' intellect, the rebels' free inquiry, surely this sign of the world of Jewish scholarship, and what better scholarship has there ever been than Jewish scholarship, really? Am I right, Daniel Froman? Now see, the first service, he wouldn't answer. Why are you saying right this time? Yeah, I'm prepared to say the Jews are the best scholars in the world. I don't know, David, what do you think about that? Anybody want to say that? Well, yeah, yeah. All scholarship has an underlying bias except scripture. <laughs> you know, right? Do you think you said something, Daniel? <laughs> Daniel, by the way, for those of you watching, Daniel is a Jew who believes in his Messiah and ours and is a student in law school. And, you know, we have to understand that the Apostle Paul is a Jew and he's a scholar's scholar. Okay? And so you should be shocked and maybe scandalized by his answer. He puts the question of justice out there on the table to be discussed, and he shuts it down. And how does he shut it down? He doesn't shut it down by a disquisition. He doesn't shut it down with an extended explanation of the intricacies of the relationship between God's free will and man's free choice. Uh, I cannot possibly... I'm sorry, but I can't possibly discuss this without remembering the night that Ravi Zacharias came to Bloomington. I just, it's just fixed in my mind because all the people at my former church were just so excited that Ravi Zacharias was going to come and whoop up on all the intellectuals in Bloomington, you know? And so I went and watched. And sure enough, he whooped up on all the intellectuals. They, none of them were there. It was a show trial. None of them bothered coming. You know, all the evangelicals were there to see him whoop up on people that weren't present. Seriously. Seriously. But there was one angst-ridden atheist young man of a certain skinniness and a certain articulation who was, I think they paid him beforehand to be the sacrificial lamb or the goat that was sent out of the camp. I'm not sure which one it was, you know. And so when Ravi is done showing us his technique, this young man gets to the mic and, and says, 
Would you philosophically agree that the permutations of the perambulations of the hypotenuse in some occasions would, would dissemble sufficient that we would redress the probabilities of uh, abdication and uh, amalgamation? You know, oh, and, and everybody cringed at the poor man who was going to get his comeuppance. And sure enough, Ravi said, why, young man, did you not ever know that amalgamation and perambulation are the hypotenuse of the situational ethics which Richard Rorty used to speak of in a way that caused Descartes to wonder until Papa Joe Stalin killed him. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was so embarrassed. And the poor guy just kept shriveling as, as Ravi talked at him. And pretty soon, you know, he was down on his knees below. And I think I saw him crawling to the back of the auditorium, you know, hoping nobody would recognize him as the fool that stood up to question the great intellect. Now listen, you guys. I'm not making fun of Ravi and all of us who were there because I'm malicious or envious. We all know the sad truths about Ravi at this point. And they were no surprise to me at all because the entire evening was built on pride. We have the superior explanations because we have the superior scholarship, because we have the superiority of <coughs> rational truth and on and on and on and on and on. And that's the way we like it in the university community. We wanna show that we're just as intellectual as everybody else, be honest. Come on, be honest. And so we want Ravi to come out and to have better sword technique than the people that are mocking us all the time. Come on. This is absolutely who we are. And I'm not against having arguments. I'm not against Christians getting a PhD and articulating the biblical truths on the campus. Even in the philosophy department. I wish Tim O'Connor would do that. But here's my point. If you read what the Apostle Paul writes here in Romans 9, and you think that what the Apostle Paul here is saying is, what shall we say then? What, interrogative, what, not who, not why, what, what shall, shall, future tense. We, you, me, say, bleep, 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 you know, out of our mouth, then, well, it's not referring to a chrono, it's not a chronological then, it's given this, then that, okay? There, uh, where, there, is no, negative, no, as opposed to yes, injustice, well, you know, we could talk about that one for a while, you know, but let's just move on. With, okay, Preposition, God, the, the supreme being, is there. Oh, it's, it's a rhetorical question. He's not really asking us. 
may, well, permissive, has a permissive content. Uh, It, well, whatever is being spoken of, never, well, that's kind of intense. And B, the verb which no one in southern Indiana ever uses. (laughs) Okay, I mean, do you know that? Do you know that southern Indiana drives me crazy because everybody has given up on the verb to be, you know? You know? Maybe you don't know. If you don't know, you probably grew up in southern Indiana, you know? (laughs) Now, do you realize why I did this? I did this because I want to show you that this is normally how we approach Scripture. We dissect it to the point where we we lose the direction and the main thrust. What is the direction and main thrust of this? You say God isn't fair? May it never be. The Apostle Paul was a scholar, scholar. He was Jewish. He had studied under the top scholar of his time. And this man refused to engage in philosophical debate. And he refused to engage in philosophical debate precisely at the point where every single one of us is tempted to accuse God of injustice. Because every one of us believes in equal opportunity. And if you think that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated might not have really meant that God chose one and didn't choose the other, you now know that's actually not the truth because why on earth, if that's what it meant, would he come back with Are you calling God unjust? In other words, if your fancy schmancy ways of explaining Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated are the right way of approaching that text, then what on earth is the Apostle Paul doing with what he says next? If we don't really have to worry about God being unjust with what comes before, you know, because it actually doesn't mean Jacob I loved and Esau I hated before they did anything right or wrong, then why does he immediately jump into this deep, water of the justice and fairness of God. You you get my point? Nod your head so that I can move on, please. Okay. All right. Thank you. We think surely here the great and learned Apostle Paul, student of Gamaliel, realized his scholarly training had been leading up to this perfect moment in time. And now he was to perform, to do his thing, causing all the country bumpkins to go cross-eyed in wonder and all the zealous young men to explode with admiration and all the older men to ooze envy and all the women and children to go home and cook dinner to be eaten in celebration of the great brainiac who just trounced the fools. What's interesting, but no, far beyond interesting, what's instructive, what's helpful, is the complete avoidance of anything philosophical in the Apostle Paul's response to our moral and political philosophical rebelliousness. Rather than give himself to a long and complicated theological discourse on the interface between the authority of God and the freedom of man, once again, the Apostle Paul gets all rigid and authoritarian, quoting the Bible. 
And he answers our demand that God conform himself to our ill-conceived and ridiculous demand for the justice of equal opportunity, not with any academic disquisition, but with the simple words of God's word. Now, where and when in God's word does he turn? And this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Listen to this. It's when God calls Moses to go down to Egypt and rescue his, his people, the slaves, okay? And there's this like back and forth between Moses and God, you know, which makes you tremble, you know? It's like Moses. It's like, Moses, stop. Please stop. Please stop, Moses. But Moses keeps pushing God. So it must be a principle with us that God likes us to push him. You know the story of the importunate widow. And it must be a principle that we as fathers and mothers inculcate in our children as we raise them, that we like them to push us. Right? They just must do it respectfully. Right? Because otherwise we're lying about God. Now, let me read it to you and listen carefully. Moses is pushing God. And so Moses says to God, Now therefore, this is Exodus 33, beginning with verse 13. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, you see the respect. Now therefore, Yahweh, if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. So here we learn that the ways of God are the way we know God. We know God because we see his ways. We know his ways. Then skipping down to verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. First, it's what? Come on. First, it's his ways. Second, it's his what? It's his glory. His ways, his glory, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness. So Moses asked for ways and glory, and God responds saying goodness. Ways, glory, goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So listen, people. Listen carefully. Here we are about to hear the ways of God which are to know God. And here we are about to see his glory and his goodness and his name. His ways, his glory, his goodness, his name. Are you with me? In other words, this is God. This is God's perfection. This is how he works. This is who he is. If you don't know this God, you don't know God. Do you hear me? This is as intense as it gets in the knowledge of God. And now let me give it to you. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Come on, people. There is no other God. 
and you understand this. This is not a philosophical disquisition. This is not political theory. God says his ways, his actions, his glory, his name is, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is God himself. Now listen, would you understand me if I said to you, think about this. Think about this. What God, so named, would be unable or unwilling to have mercy on whom he has mercy? How could any being who is not able to have mercy on whom he desires to have mercy be God? I mean, think about it. What is your definition of God? If it isn't, that it, it, it is the prerogative of God to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Okay? Now let me ask another question. What benefit it is, is it to you to deny God that prerogative, that perfection, that name? What, what benefit is it to you? Listen. God, I come from a time when we understand that we have certain qualifications for uh, opportunity. And that there ought not to be any extraneous uh, things that mess up my ability to do as well or as poorly as I want. Okay, so, so let's say we buy American political theory and reject this statement of God and who he is. What are you left with? You're left with something in my hand I bring so that I may to your cross I cling. Do you understand this? If you reject this, then the only other position you can take is that there is something you must bring to God that will influence him to save you. And what has that gotten you? Why do you want to have something that you can bring to God? You know, remember me as a little boy, I'm, I'm walking with my parents, and I pick a dandelion, and then I get tired. My dad picks me up in his arms, and I'm there contented for a while, and then I squirm, and I, I want down. He says, why do you want to walk? I say, because I want to carry my own dandelion. Do you have to carry your own dandelion? Honestly, do you have to? Can you humble yourself and say, simply to the cross I cling, nothing in my hand I bring? You're not worth God's favor. You are damned by your federal head Adam's sin. And since then, you have no claim on God. And so why don't you celebrate that? Because that's always the best worship. Where do you think Bach came from? Solideo Gloria. Can't we be a church of sinners that say nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and I will proclaim his mercy to me, starting with me, because I had nothing to bring him. <laughs> Thank you.
why am I smiling? I'm smiling because it's such a sweet place. And I smile at sweetness. I mean, imagine this. Yesterday, Mary Lee and I were privileged to go to what they call Mercy Day at the Corral Home. And it's a day they've set up to celebrate annually God showing them mercy at a certain time in their life in unbelievable ways. And so right before dinner, smoked pork, smoked beef. We proclaim God's mercy in our lives and we sing. Now, which tasted better? Honestly, which tasted better? Mercy always tastes better. You don't need any Worcestershire sauce with mercy. People, I plead with you as your shepherd. I plead with you, give up your pride. And just let God shower his mercy on you and your children. And don't claim. You remember me telling you many times that I had the great privilege of being raised by a mother who was a man. And one of the ways she had such strong faith, that's what I mean by her being a man, was when I was in junior high and high school. And I had such an overinflated sense of my own importance and what I deserved in life. And I'd come in the kitchen to talk at her. And I would say something like, well, I, I have a right. I have a right. And mud, God bless her immediately, not concerned about whether or not I felt that she was listening to me, okay? Immediately, I would say, well, I have a right, and she'd say, Timothy, you have no rights. Nobody has any rights before God. Okay? You don't have any rights What you have a claim on is God's mercy because that is his perfection. That is his name. That's how he acts. That is his being. And so I suggest that instead of focusing on who you are, you focus on who he is, and you claim his mercy for you and for your children, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will give us the humility to live under the glorious truths here laid out for us in Romans 9. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.